This week's episode of the Villain News Podcast brought to you by Active Pass. That's right, you've heard me talk about Active Pass on the podcast before. Last week we went over all the cool stuff that we've recently added, like access to the entire Warren Miller Ski Video Library, uh, members-only yoga and meditation challenges from Yoga Journal, meal plans and recipes from Clean Eating and Vegetarian Times, free race photo packages from Finisher Picks. The list goes on and on. You can learn more at velanews.com forward slash active pass i got another one that i am really psyched to add to the list and that is the new mailbag column coming to villanews.com that's right i'm going to uh, solicit questions from all of you about what's going on in the world of racing you can send your questions to mailbag at villanews.com and i'm going to do my best every week to give you some answers some hot takes and uh, myself, Andrew Hood, Betsy Welch, the other editors, we're going to supply our answers to your questions about the cycling space. So again, it is mailbag at velanews.com. Please send me your questions, your hottest takes, stuff you want to know about what's going on in the world. And we're going to put that into a column going up on velanews.com for our active pass and velanews pass readers. So again, you can learn more about the full lineup of offerings by going to velonews.com forward slash active pass. That's velonews.com forward slash active pass. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from the actual Velo News offices here in Boulder, Colorado, the very, very fancy, very nice Velo News offices. Uh, we here at Velo News have a long history of bizarre office spaces. Uh, the office we had when I first started had been the old Celestial Seasonings Tea Factory, and then it was a media outlet and a Velanus's home offices. And now I believe it is a marijuana factory like all former offices in Colorado. Uh, if you have a office space in Colorado, chances are someone's growing pot in it now. Uh, but now we are in the old uh, AIM, Active Interest Media um, offices, and there's like a big ski gondola in the lobby when you walk in. It's, uh, it's nice stuff. We're all getting used to the new ecosystem here at Velo News and outside and all the titles uh, that, that are part of the same umbrella. So I'm podcasting from the offices here. If you hear any weird um, echoes or anything like that, I'm not in a padded room. But uh, we're going to work through that again, podcasting in the 21st century. Uh, we have a great podcast Coming up today, we're going to get into all of the action from Strada Bianca, which was this past weekend. Thrilling racing. World Tour Racing is back. Uh, we saw some really compelling stuff in both the men's race and the women's race. And Jim Cotton and Andrew Hood are going to break it all down and uh, give us their insight about you know the, the strategies and the tactics, but also the wider storylines, hot takes, what it means going forward, what it means for the classics. Oh, we need to figure this stuff out. Then the second half of the show... Um, as many listeners may know, this is International Women's Week, and we have a ton of awesome content on the site about female cyclists. Betsy Welch has been churning out an amazing amount of content. And I have an interview with the six members on the U.S. Uh, mountain Bike Olympic Long Team, and we're talking all about the collaborative spirit that is pushing them forward as they go towards the Olympics. They have three spots for the Tokyo Olympics, and there's six of them. So you'd think that this would be a very cutthroat group of people who are all out for their own interest in trying to make make the games. That is not the case. They have this very collaborative, almost team-like attitude towards the Olympics, and we're going to get into that. I think it's a really cool story that uh, we've been covering here on villainews.com. Um, but before we get to that, let's welcome Jim Cotton and Andrew Hood back to the show, Jim, you were on the desk, the Velo News desk this weekend watching Strada Bianca. Um, 
first, I want to hear from you. What was your reaction when you saw Matthew Vanderpool make that big million watt acceleration up the uh, the the final climb there at Strada Bianca? Did your jaw fall off of your face? What was your reaction, Jim? Every time I watch it back, it just gets more incredible. There's these amazing overhead shots of him on that final climb into the square. Uh, going away from Alaphilippe, but it, it just looks like a flat sprint. It's just still, I think it's one of the best things I've seen in recent years. How about you, Hoodie? I mean, when you, uh, you know, we've known that Matthew Vanderpool is capable of big accelerations like this, um, but, you know, coming at the end of such a hard race, when you have gone back and watched that move, and, you know, first of all, his penultimate move on the Otolfe climb that drew out Alaphilippe and Bernal, but then that final coup de grace move, like what comes to mind? Yeah, it reminded me just the, his explosive power and just how much strength he had. It reminded me a little bit about how, how he won and still gold a few years ago where he just uncorked that amazing sprint and just blew everybody away and won in such a dramatic way. And, and you know, to do it against Alaphilippe in that setting just, you know, really put the stamp on – uh, Vanderpool is really the guy coming into this whole classics period. And I'm, to be honest, you know, you saw the torque on that bike. I'm surprised he didn't break his bike again. He's just pulling and twisting and putting so much into his pedals and his handlebars. And, you know, good thing those bikes didn't, didn't break under that pressure on Saturday because it was just absolutely spectacular. Yeah, we could have seen a repeat of Le Samyan where he just snaps his bike like it's a toothpick and casually tosses bits of it over to the side of the road. Um, I'm convinced that he would have won that Le Samyan race had his uh, handlebar not snapped. Um, unfortunately, that happened for him. And so we had to wait a couple of days to see his excitement at Strada Bianca. Guys, let's get into it. You know, this was a thrilling um, race. This was a very tactical race. This was a race where the strongest won um, typical from what we see in Strada Bianchi every year where, you know, these white gravel roads and these hills act as the deciding sections and then things kind of bunch up on the pavement. Um, a couple of takeaways that are really standing out, not just Vanderpool's win, but, you know, the fact that Tadej Pogacar and Egan Bernal made the front group in this race. The fact that Wout Van Aert looked really great until he didn't look that good. I'm trying to figure out what that means for the Classics campaign coming up. And just the fact that we had such a, just a really all-star group of young riders, guys all under the age of 25, um, coming into this finale together. You know, Jim, when you look at the tactical decisions that really steered what happened and drew out that front group, what are some of the conclusions that you came to from Stradabianke? I guess in the men's race, it was just the Van der Poel, he's got so much confidence that he could sort of test them when he wanted to. So Alaphilippe made the first move on that final gravel sector and Van der Poel kind of just pulled him back easily. Uh, and that was enough to kind of send Van Aert and Pidcock swinging a bit. And then Van der Poel just knew, he knew his moments when to go, which was the two steepest climbs of the day, which was that Tolfe one, which drew out Alaphilippe and Bernal and I think um, he said after the race that Alaphilippe kind of said, "Oh, I'm, I'm, I've got nothing left on the on the um, ride into the final square," and so he just he just waited until the steepest part of that final climb and just dropped the bomb on Alaphilippe and left him standing. Really, I think it's just Van der Poel so confident and so aware of his own abilities that he he just knows when to knows when to pull it out of the bag and knows when to wait. Yeah, Hoodie, I mean, when we see riders that have that level of confidence, I mean, we see it from time to time. We've seen it with Cancellara over the years, with Bonin over the years. I mean, like, 
it's kind of a special moment. I, and you wrote a piece on the site about how Vanderpool may be poised now to rule the classics. And I think part of this equation is that he is on such impeccable form. I think the other part of it is that and we saw this at Strata Bianchi and at La Samyan. Like his Alpice and Phoenix team is no longer this sort of hired guns, ragtag crew of like Belgian and Dutch dudes that they've kind of thrown together for Matthew Vanderpool. I mean, yes, they are a uh, – they're not a world tour team. But it also seems like he has the team depth and the team experience to be able to help him get into positions like this. What do you think – Vanderpool is capable of as we head into, you know, Flanders and Roubaix and, and the big uh, monuments coming up. Yeah, that's right, Fred. I mean, the team this year is definitely stronger than it was. Uh, you got uh, Phillips in there, you got Merlier in the sprints and a few other guys that picked up from uh, CCC. Uh, you know, he'll need a team if he's going to go head to head against uh, Dasuna Quickstep and Trek Segafredo. He can't win these monuments all by himself, even though actually I think he probably can. But uh, he will need a team to get him through the middle part of these races and protect him and have someone there to keep him out of the wind. Uh, but he can, you know, I think Vanderpool is such this kind of a one-off rider that that he can almost do it uh, kind of pirate style. You know, uh, what, he, what he's done so far this season obviously confirms he's in great, great form. I'm really anxious to see him, how he's going to race. Uh, you know, his first row bay, he hasn't done row bay yet. Last year was canceled. Uh, and to see him really go against the the big heavy hitters on the pave. I mean, last year was a little bit, you know, last year's uh, uh, Flanders maybe had a little bit of an asterisk on it simply just because it was held in October and COVID kind of threw everything, a wrench and everything. So I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen in the Northern Classics this year. And really what, what can uh, Vanderpool do? Is he going to elevate his level so high that he's almost like Merckx? Is he like the guy to beat in every race? You know, everyone, the conversation point was really, Vanderpool and Wild Van Aert, you know, I think Wild Van Aert is going to be a factor in these classics. You can't take too many conclusions just from one race. Even a bad day for Wout is fourth at Strade. That's still pretty good. And he's going to be a factor going forward into, into March and April. I think the thing you've got to think about when comparing Wout with Matthew Vanderpool as well is that he came, he went into Strade straight off a training camp at altitude. So he didn't really have the race sharpness and Plus, for him, he's got things like, you know, supporting Roglic at the Tour de France to think about. And although Van der Poel will be racing the Tour de France, he he, <laughs> he doesn't really want to be there. He's just doing it because he has to, and he's saving himself for the Olympics. So they sort of have different uh, different timings on their kind of when to hit fitness. So it might it might play a part in this these next months anyway next month uh, yeah yeah jim i was thinking about that at the moment in the race uh, i think it was like 23 k's to go when there was an acceleration and wout van Aert couldn't go with it and he and tom pitcock got trailed off the group of that front group they eventually fat fought back on and were there for the Altolfe climb and you know kudos to wout for pulling it together to get fourth place overall but there was a moment where it was just like the move was going up the road and he didn't have the gas to go with it. I was thinking about the discussion about how these two guys have such a different lead into this race. You know, both of them raced pretty aggressive cyclocross calendars coming off of this late road racing campaign. But then after Cross Worlds, Wout seemed to shut everything down, no road racing. Then he went to this training camp, altitude camp, and started building into it. Whereas Vanderpool, I mean, he went almost straight into road racing where he raced opening weekend. He was there for UAE Tour. He eventually, you know, he left UAE Tour after winning the first stage. But it really seemed like Vanderpool was keeping the same fitness block 
going from cyclocross right into this season, whereas Wout backed off of it. And I'm with you. Like, obviously, there there had to have been a difference there in, in what it meant at Stratobianchi. But I'm really curious what that means going forward. Like, are we going to see Vanderpool hit a point where, you know, this the pointy end of the spear isn't as sharp as it used to be six weeks ago? Or are we going to see Wout Van Aert now build into Roubaix and into uh, Flanders and maybe not be as sharp at Milano San Remo and Strada Bianche. Hoodie, what's your take on that? These two guys have this very different um, approach to February and early March and what that could mean for April and, and you know, the classics. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that uh, for Vanderpool, this is kind of his big peak. And then I think he'll taper off and, and reload for the Olympics. And like Jim said, uh, Wout has a little bit different, uh, longer kind of time frame to, you know, kind of build and taper his form. He got, of course, Van Aert wants to hit a peak during the classics, but he has those larger responsibilities. Um, you know, I think it's also just a reflection of, of their, you know, their quality and also their age. You know, they're quite young still, both of these guys. And, you know, they can they can maintain a higher level for longer. And I, I, I don't expect uh, Van Aert to be too far off the boil, really, coming into, uh, you know, he's racing. They're all racing this week at uh, Torino, you know, probably one of the best start list of the entire season is coming up at Torino Adriatico. And I think we'll see uh, Wout get his legs over the next week and then he'll be right there to defend his title for San Ramo. Uh, Jim, before we move off the men's race, you are our resident Tom Pitcockologist. What did you see coming from old Tornado Tom? And also Egan Bernal. I mean, we cannot forget the fact we had two of the last two Tour de France winners in this front group here. What did you say from Ineos with Tom Pitcock and uh, Egan Bernal? Well, for for Bernal, I I couldn't really believe it when I when he was still there in the top three, and uh, you know, kudos to him. He's there's been a lot of talk and lots of people following his comeback from this back injury he got at the tour, and sort of I've been taking it with a bit of a pinch of salt, like oh, I won't really believe it till I see it. And for him to be to be up there with two of the best one day racers, Zala Philippe and uh, Van der Poel, on that final climb, I think is is a great story and. Uh, I'd, I hope that he can keep that form, you know, through to the Giro and do something there. And for Pidcock, well, I think, um, yeah, he got he was one of the first to get dropped out of that lead group. But he it's only his first month in the World Tour. I mean, and he's twenty one. He's he could in four years he could be where Matthew Van der Poel and Wout Van Aert are. I think when he's their age. Yeah, I think it was a real important – I think these whole first classics for Tom Pitcock are just going to be like, you know, classic school is in session and he seems to be passing each test. Yeah, okay, he lacked it right at the end there, but it's like no better way for a young rider to get their feet wet than being at the front group to build confidence and just be like, okay, there's Matthew Vanderpool, there's Walt Van Aert. They're the strongest guys in cycling right there and I'm going pedal stroke for pedal stroke with them. So, chapeau to them. Uh, guys – as thrilling and interesting as the men's race was and as cool as it was to see Matthew Vanderpool just explode on that final climb to win, I got to say, the women's race was an extremely tactical and interesting affair as well. Unfortunately, we didn't get the level of broadcast coverage that we'd like to get with, you know, hours and hours of the women's race. But we did get to see the most decisive points of the finale of the race with the El Tolfe climb, the group coming back together, and then uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini attacking, being matched by Chantal Block and those two going into the finish. You know, Chantal Block ended up taking the win. Um, you know, this race is again SD Works exerting its team depth on the women's field. And beforehand, you know, I was really hypothesizing about 
other women that could be the Smokies that could spoil SD Works' dominance. And I kept coming back to Annemiek van Vluten. I mean, why not? She's won this race the last two times on that old Tolfe climb. She's just exploded and dropped everybody. That wasn't the case this time. Andrew Hood, you know, you wrote about this uh, race on the site. What were some of the takeaways that you had from SD Works' win, but also Annemiek van Vluten's inability to just ride away from everybody on the uh, El Tolfe climb. Yeah, I had a chance to talk to the sport director, Danny Stamm, after uh, the race on Sunday. And he, he was very happy with the way the team raced. You know, they wanted to kind of flood that front group with uh, SD Works jerseys. I think they got four riders in a group of 11. And it kind of reminds us really of how Dasuni Quickstep race is on the men's side. You know, they just have these different cards to play. And that's one way that you can neutralize uh, perhaps a superior rider and in fact, that's what Patrick Lefebvre was saying last week. That's how they're going to kind of race against Vanderpool and Wild Van Aert uh, at, the, at the Classics this year. When you do have numbers, you can play off different riders and, and send riders up the road. And that's exactly what they did. You know, they had uh, Anna Vanderbregen, you know, really sitting there, uh, saving her for that final uh, part of that race. And they were sending other riders, pinging them off the front, forcing the rivals to chase. And that's how it played out. And then they sent Chantal early and Borghini marked her wheel, Borghini Longo marked her wheel. And, uh, you know, so she had a free ride to the line and just dropped it in the last 500 meters. And that's when, you know, Van, Van, uh, and Amiek finally had the legs to try to come from behind, but then Vanderbrigham was all over her and it was one three by SD works. And just, you know, that just shows that, uh, when, you know, the women's Peloton is deeper and broader than it's ever been. But this team is so singularly stronger right now than any other team in the, in the bunch right now. It was really a kind of a tactical, you know, page from the textbook. They just had all the, had these four riders in the front group and they were able to use, say, there was Ashley Moorman, Passio and Demi Vollering. Both were attacking and just letting letting the group kind of come back to them, just picking riders off one by one. And it was... Yeah, basically only really Elisa Longo Borghini at the end who still had enough left. But when she had to tow um, Chantal Black towards that final climb, she just completely cooked herself. But um, I think um, a team not to forget is Trek Segafredo because they had Lizzie Dignan out, who obviously is a big loss from the team. And plus, I spoke to. Um, Georgia Bronzini before the race and she had mentioned that um, some of that quite a few of their riders are, are kind of waiting until March April to peak for the for the cobbled classics um, whereas I think in your story hoodie with um, Danny Stam you said that they were all coming in like super hot wanting to get the win straight away so hope it could well change you know in the next month yeah Jim I've gotten that perspective too you know so much of the storylines we've been following heading into this year's women's world tour has been the uh, the depth of the women's field and how there's no one clear favorite and how so much talent is distributed across these all, all these teams which has been great we have not necessarily seen that in the opening two big races with SD works just controlling but yeah you know I'd heard that too is basically look these are early season races SD works is coming into the season on top form and crushing it. And a lot of the other women's teams are targeting, you know, Ardennes week, are targeting Olympic qualifications for some of their star riders. 
And don't estimate, underestimate Perry Rupe and how important that is. Like everyone wants to be the first woman and the first women's team to win the first women's Perry Rupe. So I just think that a lot of teams are kind of keeping their powder dry at this point. But you can't underestimate the level of confidence that it's going to bring SD Works as they head into the Cobble Classics and the Ardennes. And, you know, they have the strongest rider or one of the strongest riders in Anna van der Breggen. But Anna van der Breggen is such a dynamic racer that she doesn't mind racing for her other teammates. We saw that at Flanders last year. She was so strong. She could have won, but she just shut down the brakes so that Chantal Vandenbroek Black could take the wins. And, and I think that's something we saw here at Strata Bianca. The other thing I got was that, you know, at Almu Pet Newsblad, okay, there was some expert tactical decisions made in the early part of the race by SD Works to split the group and to gutter it and to ride into the wind and do echelons and have, you know, flood the front group with their riders. But at Strata Bianca, it's really... You can. There's some strategy that goes in breaking up the group, but it's it's attrition. It's who's strong, who's able to make it into the front group, and that was what we saw. Like SD Works was good enough to do it. Um, Chantal Vandenbroek Black quietly amassing a storied career in women's cycling. You know, I think 30 years from now, when they look back at the history books at this era of women's cycling, obviously they're going to think of Mariana Voss and then Anna van der Breggen versus Annemiek van Vluten, but. During this era, if you look at her results, she has a world title. She has Flanders, Omlupet Newsblad, now Strata Bianca. Like Chantal van der Black is a complete badass with the races that she's won. Sh- chapeau to you, Chantal, for just absolutely, uh, absolutely crushing it. Um, anyway, it was a great race. Again, it brought up the uh, ever-present argument around Strata Bianca. Does this race deserve to be a monument? We saw some online Twitter debating. I wrote a column about it. Before we move off this topic, guys, I need to get your takes on Strata Bianca as the sixth monument. Should it be a sixth monument? Jim Cotton, we'll start with you. Oh, I have to go first. Um, I would say yes. Um, just because I know the hoodie will probably say no. Uh, I understand the point about the history of... Uh, the monuments and that they're kind of all hundred years old and kind of similar things to that. But I think just if we're, if we're talking about modernizing and kind of revolutionizing uh, cycling for the, for the kind of millennial audience, so then uh, Strada Bianca has got it all for, for kind of new fans for everyone. And it's just so watchable with the mix of surfaces. It's a beautiful race to watch uh, it. And it, I think, the most intriguing thing is the way it suits so many different riders. Like we saw in that final group in the men's race, there was GC riders, classics riders, um, bit of everything really. And it's just such a unique race and the riders themselves love it so much that it sort of deserves a special place, maybe not a monument, but some sort of special, uh, special award for awesomeness. Yeah, I'll make that. Yeah. I firmly believe that it's not monument status. It's absolutely a spectacular race. It's a great race. It's one of the best races of the entire year. Uh, just like Jim said, it's, it's a race that's unique that it, that, 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 that select group today on Saturday, it had GC, right? had Tour de France winners, world champions. That's had everybody was in that group. How many races are like that in the calendar? Not many. When you, when you do get to monument level status, uh, it's usually very specialized and a very select kind of rider can ride that long of distance. And, you know, what makes the monument? It's just an arbitrary name, right? It's just something that's been made up over the years. I'm not even sure how the name even started the monuments. But what the monuments are, are historic races that are usually at least 225 kilometers long. I mean, uh, 
uh, Strada Bianca is a young race. It's not even close to 200 Ks long. Uh, so do you extend the distance? You know, if you kind of keep the criteria the same, do you extend the distance of uh, Strada Bianca and add an hour and a half to the race? That would completely change the dynamics of the race. It would make a much flatter race, a much more of a race of attrition. It would take all the spark and jazz out of Strada Bianca that makes it so unique as it is. Uh, and also, you know, there's, there's something that you said about the history of cycling. You know, the sport is more than a century old. How many sports are that old really in the world? Not many. And we have these races that have been kind of, you know, uh, you know, markers in the history books that have been won by the champions of the ages. And so, you know, it's kind of like the, the four majors in golf or, you know, the, 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 the major tennis tournaments. You know, do you just add a new one because you want to or because a big sponsor becomes in, comes in or because some fancy new stadium? It's like, oh, let's make a new monument. Let's make a new race. No, it's like you got to stick with the with the tradition. That's what cycling is founded on. It's like, yeah, I'm nothing against Strade Bianca. It's probably my favorite race of the entire year. But is it a monument? No. Does it deserve to be a monument? No. Yeah, I'm with you, Hoodie, because I think that the problem here that we come up against is the monument title itself. And like everyone's like, well, monument should equal cool or exciting or thrilling. I mean, I'm the first one to admit that like I don't watch Lombardia. I watched the last 20 minutes of Milano San Remo. It's pretty much a boring race. I don't think that monument status grants a race um, excitement or thrilling edge of your seat action or coolness or modernness or anything. To me, it's just a, it is a designation that means this race survived two world wars, multiple global pandemics, economic instability, great depressions, economic upheaval, social upheaval, all the things that we see kill races every single year, every, you know, few years here in the States, like races come and go. And these are the four, or these are the five that have like stuck it out forever and ever and ever. And that's worthy of us to give some designation to, are they most, the most thrilling races? No. Are they the coolest races? No. Are they the most forward thinking races? No. Will I skip watching them? Yes, I absolutely will. I probably won't watch Liege, best on Liege this year. That's just the way it is. I would have way more watch, you know, much more likely to watch Strada Bianchi than I am uh, Lombardia. So it's almost like we need to rethink a designation. And I wrote this in the column. We almost need to come up with some type of term and then lump our favorite races into it. Like I was like the epics or the amazements or the, you know, the pillars, maybe some type of grouping of races that are our favorite thrilling most dynamic races. And, and that is my challenge to you, the listener. Group your races together. Give it a name. Webletters at velanews.com. Send it over to me. I will read it and we will find some fun thing to do on the site with your groupings of favorite races and, and the name that you give it. Because monuments, I'm with you. Like when I think of monument, I think of like a statue to like a, you know, an old president like sitting out in a field somewhere. You know, you think about, um, like Mount Rushmore, you know, the presidents on Mount Rushmore aren't the four best presidents. They're not the four most dynamic presidents we ever had. It's just like four old guys carved into a wall. Or, you know, I saw this made online. I can't remember from who, like the Ivy League. It's just like, there's better schools out there. There's more dynamic schools out there. But the Ivy League is the Ivy League. And let it, let's let let it be the Ivy League. Let's let the monuments be the monuments and just come up with a new designation for the the races that we love. So that's where uh, I am with it. Guys, we were recording this on Tuesday and we just finished up with the time trial at Perry Nice and uh, Tirreno Adriatico is starting here. And we have some pretty interesting storylines for the listeners to follow in both of these races, um, namely the Ineos versus Yumbo Visma season long grudge match 
slug it out slugfest that's going to happen as we lead into the uh, Tour de France. Jim, what are you watching at Paris Nice? And Terreno, like, what are the big storylines you have your eyes on right now? Like you say, it's it's a bit of a precursor to the tour, really. So, at Paris Nice, both Ineos and Jumbo Visma are kind of taking really heavyweight teams. So, um, at Paris Nice, there's uh, Gagan Hart, and uh, there was Richie Port, but he crashed out. Um, so there's Gagan Hart, and there's Primoz Roglic, obviously, and then. Um, at Tirreno, it's more about Pogacar versus versus a whole Ineos team, really, um, which kind of makes for what it was like last year. So uh, in Italy this week, it's um, Geraint Thomas and Egan Bernal. So it just makes it'll make for an interesting look at how riders form are. So, for example, Geraint Thomas didn't look quite on the ball at the start of his season. Uh, see how he's improving and to see see how Ineos race, um, see if they keep racing aggressively in this kind of new way that Dave Brailsford's getting really exciting about or if they just revert to the 2019 and before type. Yeah, Hoodie, what are you expecting to see? Is this the new look Ineos with attacks and aggression or is this going to be Fortress Froome of old uh, gathering around um, Garrett Thomas to smash everyone into smithereens? Yeah, I'm, I'm keeping my eye on, on Bernal. I think that the team really wants to kind of bring him back into the fold. Do they want him to keep racing, keep getting results? You know, have having Bernal back, especially if he performs well over the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, I would not be surprised if they changed his program and brought him to the tour if he is indeed flying. Uh, you know, going into the Giro, they might just change his program and say, "Hey, you're going so well, we're going to bring you back to the tour." Especially against uh, you know, if if Roglic. Smashes Perry Nice this week. I mean, he had a great time trial. Uh, he's really in the pole position on, on virtual GC and going into the final climbs. And if Pogachar, you know, lights up, uh, Terreno, you know, look at what he did at UAE to start his season. But another thing I'm watching for next week, this coming week at, uh, Terreno is Peter Sagan. You know, Sagan's back. You know, he had COVID-19. You know, he missed the classics last year, only won one race in COVID season last year. So I think, uh, Sagan's going to be racing on pride this year. You know, everyone's talking about these young riders, the Vanderpools, and, uh, you know, everybody's talking about Wout and, uh, uh, and, um, Vanderpool. So it's like, I think Sagan's going to be there really intent on showing who's the boss. So. I'm hoping to see some flashes of brilliance from uh, Peter Sagan. Yeah, I mean, Sagan is going to be cramming for the exam, right? I mean, he's got to be using Tirreno as last, last opportunity to get big racing efforts into his legs before Flanders and Roubaix. And uh, I'm with you, man. I mean, it doesn't seem like that long ago that we were talking about this being the Sagan era of dominance. And that page seems to have turned. And if, you know, he doesn't win more races and get back to that level of form to compete with these guys this year, I mean, it might just be one of those, one of those moments where the era of cycling quickly goes from one era to the next. And we're now in the Vanderpool phase. Um, anyway, we're going to be covering all those races on VeloNews.com. So stay tuned to the website for all of the thrilling analysis and uh, news. Jim and Andy, thank you so much. You have been great co-hosts on this episode. And now we are going to hear from the six members of the U.S. Olympic cross-country mountain bike team. That is Kate Courtney, Leah Davison, Chloe Woodruff, Aaron Huck, Hannah Finchamp, and Haley Batten talking about how they have been preparing collaboratively for this push towards the Olympics. Uh, they're coming right up. 
The 2021 Summer Olympics in Tokyo are three months away, four months away. I've completely lost count, but they are coming up. And the, one of the biggest events that we're going to keep our eyes on is the women's cross-country mountain bike race because we have a number of Americans who are going to star in this race, who could do very well. And it's a storyline that we have been following at VeloNews.com over the last few months. And today on the podcast, I am so psyched to have the members of the U.S. women's long team on the podcast. That is Aaron Huck, Leah Davison, Kate Courtney, Hannah Finchamp, Chloe Woodruff, and Haley Batten. They've been doing training camps in various locations over the last week. And we're going to catch up to talk all about what this training has been like, the spirit of camaraderie that has been pushing this whole squad forward, and just what we can expect in the next few months in the lead up to the Olympics. So, thank you all, first of all, for coming on this call. It's going to be a very fun conversation here. Um, let's talk about these training camps. You know, there's a number of you in Tucson. It sounds like there's another group in California. What's the origin story behind getting people together to train together at this time of the year as you all prepare for the coming season? Well, in, you know, COVID and it gave us, um, you know, very much more less uh, racing opportunities. So, and we're used to like in the spring, all getting together in California and racing each other. And these efforts are really important, you know, to the, to the world cup opener. So we were brainstorming in the winter months and, and saying, okay, how are we going to get those efforts in to push each other, get together like we normally do and, and really take advantage um, of this time to like raise the bar and raise the level. So yeah, that's kind of where it started just on a WhatsApp group call. Yes. I meant to say, is this like text messages, WhatsApping, who's contacting who I need to get the backstory here about like how this is all, all going down. Haley. Well, Chloe, myself and Leah were kind of like, had been working on different strategies over the past three years, because I think that the three of us had done a lot of points chasing stage racing and so we kind of already had a group chat started about just general logistics. And I think I remember that when it was either Benelli or Temecula, the news about that getting canceled came out, I think, end of January. And I think that we were like, okay, what are the odds that we're going to have any races in the U.S.? What should, like, let's take things into our own hands and figure out if we can get that race intensity and not rely on whether or not race events are going to happen. Um, so that was kind of like the thought. And then the time and location kind of worked out because Leah was already going to be in Tucson. Chloe lives in Phoenix. Hannah and I will go wherever it's warm. <laughs> and so we kind of picked Tucson hoping that most people would be able to, to make it. And I think Kate and Haley, I'll let you guys speak, but that, trip was just a little bit too much and it's turning out that races are actually happening so that kind of complicated things with the additional travel coming from california i will say one of the things that i really appreciate about this group is for all of us individually and as a team decision making has been really hard during covid so we haven't known enough of the variables to make clear and confident decisions really early about where we're going and what races we're doing given that there's a lot of change in the schedule, there's a lot of change in what's coming up for us. Um, and that's one thing I appreciate. You know, if if my race schedule had worked out slightly differently, I would have loved to be there at this time. But given 
the way my race schedule came together at the last minute, it, it didn't make sense to make the big um, drive out. But with this group, I always know I can call these women and bounce ideas off them. And it will always be um, a place to get honest feedback and support in whatever I need to race at my best. And in turn, of course, I'm there to offer that for them in whatever they need to race their best. So we have one group in Tucson, and that is Chloe, Aaron, Hannah, and Leah, and the other group out in California, and that is uh, Haley and Kate. Uh, Kate and Haley, I'll start with you. I mean, I want to hear some stories. I mean, what has been the nature of this training? I want to hear like the the fun stuff, but also the like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up the hardest interval. Like, tell me the story of what these training sessions have been like, where you guys have been and what has been the nature of them. Yeah, well, I think like for me, um, I wasn't able to make it to the Arizona camp just from for home reasons and family. Um, but I think last minute just decided to join Kate just for a couple of days. She has her Kate epi- or Kate camp going on. <laughs> so it's pretty close. We've actually never trained together, which is crazy. My family just moved to Santa Cruz. So now it's just a lot closer than we've been in the past. Um, but yeah, I just joined and it was like two hours away and we had three, three big days on the program and I just kind of jumped on with what Kate was doing. And, um, it was a lot of Strava hunting and <laughs> going hard, but it was pretty fun to, to work together a bit. I've definitely haven't had the opportunity to do that with these women before. So it was, it was fun. And I wish we could all be together for that. Yeah. I think, uh, the women of NorCal are aware that Haley Batten is coming. She took down some pretty, uh, awesome times and we had a great time. I think, um, a lot of times for that endurance volume specifically, having someone else there, one, to kind of keep you honest on the pace and, make sure you're not stopping. And when you want to back off just those five watts, you look over and you say, okay, can't back off those five watts. Um, that can make a big difference in those long, long rides. And it also just saves mental energy. So I think that's something that, you know, we can feed off each other and Haley loves to ride her bike and it's a ray of sunshine when doing so. So that was a hugely positive, motivating thing. Um, just to be able to train together out here for a few days. How about you, the, the, the Tucson crew? You know, I mean, there's obviously Mount Lemon. There's a lot of um, group rides. There's the shootout. Like, talk to me about what the, that camp has been like and what you guys have been working on there. Our camp's been pretty variable. I think Leah is coming off of uh, some back stuff that I'll let her speak to. And Chloe has that is she's nursing. And so we've been kind of making it up as we go um, and definitely spending more time on mountain bikes. So those QOMs are fresh for the picking. <laughs> but day one, we went after a pretty, or Aaron went after a pretty good one, both the Suaro National Park East Loop. So I held that crown like years and years ago. And since then, it's like fallen, you know, a dozen times. But um, yeah, I mean, it's the first day I've had intensity on the bike in quite a while. And it was like one of the most motivating things. Like my goal the last few weeks has been, I want to like be there at least one day for a little bit at training camp. And I feel like I was able to do that on Monday. Let's be honest. Erin is like a QOM hunter. Like she will, she will get those QOMs. Like watch out world. <laughs> well, Hannah and I are only six seconds off of a pretty like solid downhill QOM. So that's kind of like, those are, those are the real goals these, these days. <laughs> like I want that downhill mountain bike segment. And I wanted to add too, I don't know if everybody feels the same way, but I've been doing a lot of riding just with the guys in general. I think we find a lot of us find ourselves in that position and it doesn't happen often that you have a strong world's class woman to, to ride and train with. 
And I think that really changes your perspective on trading and what you're capable of. Because when you're riding with a guy uphill or downhill, you kind of have this like, okay, I'll try, but like, I might not be quite there. And you kind of give yourself that extra space. But when you're with a strong ass woman and you, you're together and you're training hard, I think that changes your perspective and what you're capable of. And that's a really cool thing. And I think, um, it's special that we can connect ourselves in that way because that doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen often that you have a six strong women in the U S that are world's class and strong. And, um, I think that's really cool and it adds a lot to what we're, we can do together. Yeah. I think especially for some of these harder, like all out intervals, which is some of the stuff that we're getting ready for with racing on the horizon, it's easy to think, Oh, I'm going all out because 95% is really, really hard. But it's that extra 5% that makes the difference. And it's much easier to find that extra 5% when there's someone right next to you. Just like Kate said earlier, you know, you find those five extra watts because you don't have an option. And it's really nice to have that before you line up and it counts on race day. Um, that's, that's when you want to already know that those five watts are there and not be wondering. Well, and also the, the benefit of this whole like riding together, working together as a team, we have like the whole world to race against. And if we can use each other to push each other, but also like it's a big confidence builder because it's like, oh yeah, I hung with like Aaron on that interval or like I was with Kate on that interval and that hill climb and like Kate won world championship. So I think I could do it too, you know? So it's, it's just like, it's, it's an environment where each other's accept, success like builds on each other and, and like the confidence just starts to grow. Yeah. And a really great time to think about strengths and weaknesses. That was something Aaron and I actually spoke about on our ride today was mountain biking is a really dynamic sport. And so, you know, the person with the highest power profile or whatever else isn't necessarily going to win every race. And so even though each of us have different strengths and weaknesses. I think we can all learn from each other in various aspects and continue to identify, okay, I'm really strong in this area, but maybe I need more improvement over here and, and all across the board. I was going to say, I think there's also an element of this um, that is, I think, unique sometimes to women's racing and unique to this particular group in that uh, I talk about it as like, you don't want your competitor to fall down a rock garden and like not finish the race. You want them to have their best race and you want to beat them. Um, and that's a very particular type of mindset. I think all of these women on this call have that and you have to have that to be able to benefit from the training we're talking about, uh, where you're willing to go to your limit, have someone else go to their limit and, and you want to see if they're better and you want to see if, where you can improve and where you can be better. Um, and I think that takes, a lot of confidence, but also this kind of growth mindset that uh, you believe you're always capable of improving and you want everyone to be giving their best. You want to race people at their best. You want them to have a great race and you want to have done the work to be that little bit better or stronger where it counts. Um, and so I, I think there is a really cool mindset that, you know, for the six of us talking, like it sounds like, like a given, but uh, it's not in all groups and in all races. No, and that's an important point, Kate, that uh, yeah, I remember talking about this with Leah in the fall, you know, you know, way back in the day, I was Villanue's mountain bike editor when Leah was just up and coming and Chloe was a junior and, you know, it, it's always been very competitive in American women's mountain bike racing, but 
there hasn't always been this level of camaraderie and like working together. And the story I wrote in the fall about, you know, coming together to chase after these points to really target the maximum number of points and then let it, you know, let the cards fall as they, as they may just hasn't always been sort of the mindset in the, um, in the group and to see it manifest itself in the form of a, a training camp where everyone works together and like offers advice to each other and picks each other up. I mean, it just seems to be, um, just an event that's sort of born from that spirit, that collaborative spirit. And I don't really have a question to base off of that. I just think it's really cool. I mean, it's a story that, um, I think it's one of the, one of the most important stories in American cycling right now, what you guys are doing, especially because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the Federation doesn't have anything to do with this. You guys are doing this on your own. I- yeah. And I would give a lot of credit to Leah for that, for starting this whole thing and for like making this collaboration take place and for actually putting in the work to organize everything. And I'm not sure I can't speak for her, but I think a lot of this, um, motivation might come from the Nordic ski team who they showed that, you know, that women's ski team, they were maybe the Europeans were kind of owning that sport and they decided, okay, my weaknesses are here as a team in the U S my weaknesses are here. Yours are there. Maybe we can work together and build like rise the whole tide and we'll be on top and, and we can see them doing that now. And that's taken years to do, um, and a lot of hard work. And I think this is maybe the beginning of something great for the future. Um, because it has to start somewhere. But I think that for sure has been really cool for our sport to see. And I hopefully we can, we can bring that and keep that going. Yeah, you're right, Haley. I'm Nordic ski, that US ski team I'm obsessed with. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a similar sport. It's an individual sport. And yeah, they have like more team relays that they do together. And oh, I wish we had more like relay instances because it's so, it's such a cool event, but it's taking that whole spirit of like, you know, Keegan Randall was kind of the trendsetter and she forged this like whole new path of, of like, yeah, Americans were good at this. And then like once one person starts having success, then like, all the next generation to come is like, yeah, this is, it's expected. You know, it's like, yeah, we're good at this. Like, and, and we're going to work together to push each other. And it's really cool. Cause I get to see that firsthand actually with the ski team. Cause most of the women train in Southern Vermont over the summer and they roller ski right by my house. And so like, I'll be making pancakes in the morning and I hear like, click, 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 click of like the roller ski poles, you know, their ski poles. And I like run outside and I'm like, Jesse, <laughs> like we like talk on the lawn and I like see them training together all the time. And I'm like wildly jealous because I'm like, oh man, if we got to train together all the time, like how cool, how powerful is that? And, and like just comparing experiences with those ladies and to us. And they're like, you train alone most of the time. And I'm like, yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, taking from that context and being like, yeah, we can make this a team sport. Like it doesn't, we don't have to be siloed all in different places, focused on competing against each other. Like we can work together and, and celebrate, you know, celebrate each other's success. It's, it's just so much more fun 
to do it that way and and so much more meaningful because when Chloe wins the short track, I'm like so excited. When Kate wins the first cross country and the first short track of the season, like I'm so thrilled. It's like the U.S. women in 2019 came out in fourth. It's so cool. <laughs> it's like it's working. <laughs> it is working. And I mean, the last checkup that I had with you all, there was this, you know, this emphasis placed on the first World Cup and that was going to decide likely the Olympic spots. But I believe that was also going to decide which nation got the maximum three points. Um, Leah, I'll stay on you with this, but what is the status right now of where the U.S. sits in the nation ranking and how that will determine how many spots we get for Tokyo? I might pivot to Aaron and, and Kate on this one because they're the number specialists. There's a lot of mixed messaging. Um, I think I have clarity on the individual points now, but I think that we will still get three spots. I'm not entirely sure uh, what they're going to count and what they're not going to count. They've taken the position that um, for smaller races, the current UCI ranking holds true. Uh, but for World Cups, for the Olympics, for World Championships, uh, there's a separate ranking that's based off of March of last year plus uh, the big international races, which is very important for Americans um, who did not race a ton. So, for example, I went from first to I think I'm like just in the top 70 now still. Uh, but that will not be the case for the key races. Um, and I think they're doing the same thing for the Olympics for spots, because if they, uh, you know, kept a running tally, the U.S. would get zero. And a lot of the European teams racing um, would be jumping up in the ranking. So I'm hopeful that they're uh, doing what they need to do to keep that fair. And given where we were um when things kind of shut down in 2020, I think we are still very much in a position to have three spots. We're over a thousand points ahead of the next nation behind us, which are the Netherlands. So they still, the ne- the first two world cups will count towards nation ranking. But I think as long as we have three finishers at those races, we'll be guaranteed three spots. It doesn't even matter where we finish just as long as we're there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so Kate, you have your Olympic spot secured. For everyone else, there's still questions in the air. It's going to be based off performance, perhaps a coach's choice, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious how you are, all are mentally um, viewing the potential that you are going to go and the potential that you might go, that you, that you also might not go. Like, how do you um, prepare yourself for both the potential for joy and the potential for uh, disappointment? Yeah, Olympic qualification. It's always, I, I think it's more stressful to qualify for the Olympics than, than compete. I mean, it's so hard. And, and when you can make it happen, it's the best thing on earth, obviously. It's what we all strive for. Um, my, I've never automatically qualified for Olympic spot. So I've always had to, you know, approach it, um, like mentally, like the situation I am in right now, or we all, most of us are in. I, I approach it like if I do the best that I can every single day. And I, and I work the hardest that I can. I do every single thing. I check all the boxes and then I've done everything that I can. You know, I, I, I'm not in control of the results. I'm not in control of the Olympic selection committee. I know we've all worked hard and, and we're all like throwing the kitchen sink at this. So whoever ends up going, uh, like has earned it, you know, and, 
And so if I've done all of that for myself, then that's all I can control. And you can just hope that it works out. I think it's all about just finding that joy in the process as well. So, you know, you do everything you can and, you know, just there's also, you know, you have to be content day to day with everything you do and all the hard work, um, but also not complacent because we have an incredibly competitive team and group of women here. And that's motivating. And if it can be motivating and not threatening, that's the right place to be. Yeah. And I think no matter where you sit in it, um, being all in and being 100% in is what makes it, at least for me, is what makes it exciting. And it's what makes you learn the most. It's what makes you grow the most. Like if you only give 80%, then you can sit back and say, well, maybe I didn't make it because I didn't give this extra 20%. But if you give 100%, then you have real data that you can analyze and be like, well, here's this weakness or here's what we can change next time or this next go around or whatever. So I think being 100% all in is what gives me joy in the process. But boy, isn't that a vulnerable place? Time. Yeah. I feel like it's vulnerable. Well, yeah, vulnerable even to say, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because it's way easier. Like showing up to the start line and giving your best. I mean, we do it all the time. I mean, you are like revealing yourself to the world. You're like, here I am. If, okay, maybe my best on this day is 15th or maybe it's winning the race, you know, but this is, this is who I am. So it's really, it's like the whole process of racing and being a bike racer and really like striving to be your best is an act of one long act of vulnerability (laughs) if you're doing it right. To bring it back to our favorite U.S. ski team, I was thinking a lot about them today because they finished fourth by like, what was it, 0.8 seconds, Uh, like the smallest margin possible. Um, And I thought about that in my intervals today because uh, I think you have to be willing to lose by an inch or win by an inch. And you never know what that small metric is that might make the difference. Um, and it's a lot easier to win by a mile or lose by a mile. Like to know that it's not going to happen and maybe give up early and the margin's big. Or to know that you're way out in front and get complacent and, you know, manage to hold it off. But to give that last little bit and have it be as close as it can be um, is really hard. And it means you have to hold yourself to that standard. And I think all of these women are going to do that and it's going to be a game of inches. Hannah and I were talking about this on a ride today because she asked me like, what do the Olympics mean to you? And I was like, geez, <laughs> are you just trying to make me <laughs> try to go for the morning interval? Hey, you could work for Velo News. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of like, I think that especially after last year with the Olympics finally getting postponed and, um, And then in 2019, when I broke my ankle, like, I think it enabled me to go numb regarding the Olympics themselves, because it's not about that single day. It's really about the opportunity to to be your best and show your best. And it's like when they postpone the Olympics, it's like, what do they really what does that single day mean to me? It 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 doesn't really mean that much. But the, the process, like Chloe was saying, and just like the opportunities that we've had and the opportunity to just be all in on something. Cause how often do we have that opportunity to just this single goal is going to be the most important thing that I focus on for years. 
um, not very many people have that chance. So to me, it's like, I don't really think about that day as much as the days leading up to it. You know, not that many people have the opportunity to work towards something for years and years and years, but a lot of people do have the opportunity to honor the process in something or another in their life, whether it's work or like set up your own mini Olympics, you know, like pick a race and call it your Olympics and put everything into it. And I really think that you will experience that same joy and satisfaction, at least I hope that many of us have gotten to as we've pursued this journey. I know, gosh, Um, (laughs) so many things. I guess, I mean, for me, I think the delay in in the Olympics, definitely, I feel like it gave me more of an opportunity to compete for the spot. I think before it was something where I could try really hard and I could kind of be in it, but I was under 23. So I think I was, I think it was still an opportunity to be in the fight. And I think that's exciting. And I think like, what everybody is saying, it's an opportunity. The Olympics is an opportunity. And no matter what that is for you, it's having that opportunity. And that is really exciting. And so for me, I definitely I'm a first year elite. And I hope I've seen a lot of under 23s perform in the elite category. Um, and I want to be ready to race with the best. And um, I'm going to do that. And that for me is is part of the opportunity. And I think for all of us, that opportunity is exciting. And no matter what it where it ends up for us being part of that process and get going all in for that is like Aaron said, it's an opportunity a lot of people don't have and it's really exciting and it's going to be chaotic and crazy. And that's why I think it means so much to a lot of people. And that's why, yeah, it has all the highs and lows for it. But I think for me just to be in that fight and to feel like I'm a competitor is something that's exciting for me and it's been a goal for a long time. Well, it's a fight and a process that we will continue to cover on com, and it's one that um, is phenomenally inter- interesting and there's a lot of intrigue, but I think that the story of the camaraderie and all of you working together to try and achieve this common goal, to me, is the overriding story of this entire process. And I really appreciate you all um, sharing your insights and thoughts with me today. Aaron Huck, Leah Davis, and Kate Courtney, Hannah Finchamp, Chloe Woodruff, and Haley Batten, members of the U.S women's mountain bike olympic long team you have been phenomenal guests you're welcome back whenever you would like share my contact information call me up blow me up on email or on twitter you're always welcome <laughs> thanks fred thank you thank you, thank you. thank you.